0: Welcome to the Baby Giants Investing Podcast. Join us as we chat about the weird and wild world of small cap investing, all while searching for the precious few fast growing businesses that have a shot at becoming industry giants.
1: This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Podcast guests and their clients may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.
0: welcome to the baby giants investing podcast my name is matt joss and joining us today we have andrew page kevin fung and claude walker uh joining us so thanks very much for joining me gents looking forward to uh to having another chat
2: definitely great Great to be here
0: hey guys we'll jump in we'll chat about satire this episode maybe maybe we'll get time for another topic as well but satire is a, a business that we've um had asked uh, request for a couple times. Uh, it's a pretty interesting business. So the ticker code is CTT. Um, a bit over five hundred million market cap at the moment. Um, and what it does, it's a it's an online fashion luxury retailer. Yeah, fashion retailer for luxury goods, clothing, um, shoes, bags, and and accessories. But primarily started with clothing. Um, and what's interesting about it is it's one of the fastest growing companies on the ASX. So I think. Uh, it started just a few years before it listed. So it listed, um, how long ago would it be now about eight coming up to
2: 18 months ago? I think. Yeah, just, late 2020, yeah. I believe.
0: Yeah, correct. So, um, it's, you know, started in 2018, it had about half a million of revenue, you know, 2019, 7 million, 2020, 30 million, um, 2021, about 90 million of revenue, um, and now, you know, in that latest half year, over 100 million of revenue. So it's grown extremely fast, you know, 180% growth in the latest half year. Um, 2021 had 300% growth. Um, so just, yeah, extreme kind of rocket ship growth, obviously buoyed by the pandemic and stay-at-home spending. But I think what's interesting about it is it seems to have potentially found this this glitch in the matrix, I guess you'd say, which is what I, what I think about when companies can grow exceptionally fast. People are comparing it to Afterpay, obviously a very different model what's um what's interesting about it, i guess there is is the business model so it's not just a online retailer it's, it's effectively a drop shipper so it's not holding inventory and that's what's allowed part of what's allowed it to grow so extremely fast so similar to farfetch it's a farfetch competitor Um, but as has been covered in a couple of different articles uh, the afr the new york times it's also sort of a gray market retailer which is how a lot of online retail got started—it's um, not as exceptional as it might seem. But essentially, they're not typically working with the brands themselves; they're working with a, a distributor. Um, so, kind of a, an, an interesting combination of extremely fast growth and a, a business model that's, I guess, quite different or potentially disruptive, depending on which way you're looking at it. Um, yeah. Well, that's with well that, that intro out of the way. What do you, what do you guys think, um, Claude? Do you have any any thoughts on CETAR to, to start us off?
3: I think you've hit the key points of the business and, and why it's so interesting and, and why it has intrigued me. Um, actually, how I first came across it was a much more sort of first-order thinking um, little reaction in in the sense that I was just going through the recent listings at the beginning of 2021 because sometimes um, when a new company lists in December or early January, it kind of just falls through the gaps because people aren't really paying attention at that time of year and so i was just catching up on all of those and i came across um satire and you know popped it on the watch list because it i guess it looked interesting in the sense that they were forecast you know there was high growth basically which is what you've sort of covered then on the 3rd of february 2021 they put out a uh, announcement to the ASX called the proposed grant of employee incentive options to Seti's CEO and chairman, and there were various granting amounts for various for various amounts of options. But there was 10 million options with an exercise price of 63 cents, being the closing price of Seti on the second of February. Um, 10 million of those options that had the vesting conti- conditions of. Um, continued service until release to ASX of Setai's half-year financials for the period ending 31 December 2021, and Setai shares reaching just reaching 85 cents at any point in time. And like I was looking at the uh, the market for Setai shares, and it was very very thinly traded at that point, and trading at 60 something cents. So I thought, oh blimey, you know, I you know I bet that the share price will like easily get up to 85 cents, especially when, you know, there's so much riding on it for this, for the CEO, if if it gets to that point, just to to trade at 85 cents. Um, So I just jumped in and and bought shares there. And then without ever really, um, and and the same for the the chairman, but without ever really, you know, overthinking it or thinking too much about it, I actually probably ended up missing a bigger opportunity because I then sold out at, I don't know, somewhere a little bit under the current share price um, for sure. But I sold out just because I had that basic trade thesis. But the funny thing was that about a week after that, or at some uh, point, let me just say the seventeenth of February, they did an update on proposed grant of employee incentive options, where they said um, that you know after consultation with major shareholders, the company's board will withdraw the proposed grant of options to the CEO. So that so that proposed grant that I talked about momentarily and and it was actually my original reason for buying the shares that got taken away anyway,
0: yeah, so I guess it sounds like it kind of like overrode the decision i guess it was it was it seemed like an opportunity for management to increase their stake after having just recently ipo'd and I guess it got um squashed, it seems like by the board or by large shareholders
3: you have to you have to understand as well, for me, of course, just because somebody proposes something and then the shareholders say no that doesn't mean that my mind deletes the information that they propose it in the first place. But it's interesting. <laughs> that I, I think for some people, it maybe it, they'd never even had that information in their mind because I've heard some people say some pretty bullish things about satire, which is interesting when you consider the fact that, like, yeah, it's a great growth story, but it doesn't actually make a profit, right? And it's spent in, in its most recent report, it's spent more on marketing than its gross profit. So this thing is really taking a big... Punchy growth attempt, and you know, just all things considered, I just think it's a fascinating thing to watch. But it's not one I feel comfortable like participating in at the moment, anyway.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point. So the shares we should mention have um, have it might be five hundred million market cap now, but it had been up to several billion. So they're trading around a dollar forty, just under a dollar fifty ish as we're recording this today. It had had been much higher. I think it got up to the high four dollars mark a few months ago, um, and Um, you mentioned, you know, uh, it's not profitable, um, but it had been profitable before the IPO. And I guess that's what had attracted a lot of people to it, right? It's like that combination, hey, I get to have, you know, my cake and eat it too. I get to have two, 300% revenue growth and also the company trades profitably. So, um, you know, the financials released going back to 2018 were just around, you know, just slightly above break even. I think 2020, 1.7 million in profit, Um, first half of 2021 financial year they reported 3.6 million of profit and so I guess that's pain part of what has now reversed as you said Claude in the light you know more recent results is is that profitability
3: and it was profitable in the previous financial year as well from memory as well so right after it listed like after it listed it was profitable so we saw it was profitable which is I, I think, cool. And then I guess that gives it the right in many people's eyes, and, and perhaps correctly so, to say, hey, I've proved I can be profitable. Now I'm going to spend really enthusiastically um, and just chase the growth, which it could well work out. You know, I'm not really against it. It's definitely not something that I'm saying, oh, this this isn't one to watch. Like I think it's interesting and it could end up being a really good business. But at the same time, I, I definitely see a few things that at least – Like I said, I bought it and I sold it, and I would potentially buy it again if it got cheap and you could sort of – if it felt like it was the right setup, I'd potentially buy it again. But because this kind of very high-risk endeavor with, you know, not that high percentage of repeat customers – it makes me uncomfortable and it means that I'm not really one that I can just like buy and hold forever in this one, but perhaps that will be the right thing to do in the end.
2: Can I can I out myself before we get more into this conversation as the ignoramus of, of this conversation? I haven't looked at this company uh, as closely as you, so, but maybe it puts me in a good position to ask some dumb questions here um, and just some big picture stuff. So um, I did have a quick squeeze at the presentation, Matt, and as you said, that growth is just eye-watering what i want to know is in your uh, or kev's uh, measure what is it that has propelled that they they they're not their own brands they're just drop shipping as you say yeah they talk about I noticed they talk a bit about their technology but let's be real here for a second like online retail isn't you know it's not the cutting edge computing kind of stuff what's the secret sauce here and and okay it, the first the first you kind of touched on the first point I thought well maybe they're just throwing squillions of dollars at marketing in the early stages but obviously not if they are running um, profitably for a year there so so what was it that sets them apart and has given them this this wonderful historical growth uh, achievement? And is it something that I can look out for in the future for other companies? Because what, what, what were any possible markers of that? Sorry, long rambling. Yeah,
0: question. no, no, it's good. It's a very important question. I think there's two parts to it. One is the supply side, um, or maybe three. So one supply side, second, their operating leverage, and third, um, the CEO, Dean. So I'll come back to those second two, but on the on the supply side they seem to have managed to negotiate agreements with a lot of distributors to set up this special arrangement where they're marketing online for a distributor say based in italy that might be distributing some um, goods for a luxury brand and particularly during the pandemic this took off but even before then if you can um, sell those goods at lower price than they might be otherwise otherwise online the fact that we talked about this in other episodes talking about the advantage for online retailer. Like you don't it's one of those things where, you know, like Google does only needs to be fractionally better as a search engine to get all of the search engine business. I think if you're if you're competing on price, you only need to be a little bit better on price. And I think that they those basically those arrangements allowed them to be a bit better on price through basically kind of like some gray market arrangements, some maybe the operating leverage of not having a lot of costs in the business, um, allowed them to offer things typically at a lower price than they otherwise be offered online and that's pretty attractive right if for a large segment of the audience who's um, trying to buy luxury goods they're incredibly expensive if you can get them a bit cheaper that's attractive so there's elements of their business model i guess structurally just not having inventory compared to others is attractive but farfetch has that too so i think that that supply arrangements that they were able to negotiate with the distributors is really
2: key. I oh, so really want to dig into that point because that seems like the key here. So it seems like the answer is just really exceptional deal-making with some big players, right? Which gives them the stock, the inventory, and the ability to charge at a lower price.
0: Yeah, I guess the um, question is whether that is sustainable, whether the brands themselves would prefer to have a direct relationship, let's put it that way, rather than mm. a distributor kind of,
2: well, you've you potentially know, got someone just selling
0: your product out there. That's the risk, right? So that's um, that's kind of what the New York Times article alluded to was whether the brands were happy and some brands may not be, some might not care at all, said I'm still fairly small. The, the concern is, um, and I guess that's the potential bear cases, if you are offering a product you know, at a lower price for these luxury brands, it's all about exclusivity, especially the really ultra premium one, maybe the mid-tier kind of quote unquote luxury doesn't care, but if you're buying like a, you know, a very luxury handbag, the whole point is to make it as exclusive as possible, not to, to not right. to discount it. And so that's one possible risk. And, you know, Sedai has some answers to the way that they manage that. Um, but yeah, I think that is something to watch out for is, are they are they operating in a way that's, you know, keeping the brands at least not unhappy with them enough to ask them to be removed from the platform? Yeah, it
1: feels like they kind of got the jump on some other platforms as well. Like, I think previously, like in that ultra sort of premium luxury goods space, most people would be going to the brand direct, like they're going to, you know, the expensive handbag store or the expensive fashion store direct. But I think um, as the internet has developed, like consumers have found that, you know, with the power of platforms, they can go onto one website, whether it's Farfetched or Setai and then search for multiple brands. So the consumers sort of won out there and they got a very good deal on price as well. So I think that's what sort of fueled and rocketed a lot of the early growth. They kind of got the jump on, I guess, a couple of people that hadn't thought of going through the back door and, you know, tying up some of these agreements with distributors. So they were getting a really good price and the consumers were winning. And I think that sort of really fueled a lot of their SEO growth. The second part of that, I think, is the negative working capital as well. So they were getting paid for for the goods not holding any inventory and you know they could really sort of reinvest into the business quite heavily and they had a quite a small team there so that it kind of compounded that that early growth and they had the jump on a lot of the competition there as well I think.
2: Okay so so what I'm hearing is some really savvy deals a good first mover kind of advantage and doing this early on and doing it better than others. Um, sort of underpinning all of that that kind of growth. The other question then is who's eating the margin here? So if I'm, I know, I, I think you struggled a bit with this too, Matt. I might as well actually I, naming a really luxury handbag brand. It's not, it's outside of my wheelhouse, but I'm going to say Gucci and correct me if I'm wrong, but let's say that I'm Gucci, right? And I'm selling all these handbags. I'm selling it to distributors at a certain price. Like that's 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 my business to business sort of price that I make. And then they, they the distributor then gets to make a margin by reselling that. So with Satire coming in and offering a better price, it, it seems like it's the distributor themselves that, that's taking taking the hit on margin there and may be happy to do that because they get a little bit of extra volume through them than they otherwise would.
0: Uh, I think it's it'd probably be the retailers. So if the distributor's typically selling to a retail shop, the retailer would be taking that margin. Mm-hmm. Um, and so instead, is offering them the ability to sell you know, quote, unquote, direct through satire. So it could be better margin for the distributors potentially than they might otherwise be getting through. Sorry, to retail.
2: S- s- right, of course. But 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 not necessarily retail that's also of a similar model and in a similar, um, you know. Physical retail, I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So so I, I guess, I, I guess I'm, I'm trying to, I'm coming at this from a long way, I'm trying to sort of understand, A, this the, the history of that incredible insane growth. Which I think you've answered, but the thing that sort of stands out to me is what? How does this play out longer term? And again, this is a business which achieved incredible growth. They talk themselves about this huge market opportunity. Seems like there's a bit of a structural move underway here. Now they're having they're still growing strongly, but as Claude pointed out, there's an absolute fortune on marketing expenses to do that. Add that to the fact that other people are going to take notice and start potentially doing this i'm just wondering where's the sustainability in this this kind of hyper growth
0: yeah it's a good question um i think where's the sustainability is probably it's quite difficult to go and negotiate all those partnerships so it would be a bit onerous for someone just starting up to go and do that and then have the scale they did when
2: they did when they were at half a million dollar sales type you know what i mean so it's sort of like I get the point There's it was not not straightforward you or I probably couldn't do it but
0: yeah, but I guess when they did it there they wasn't what they, they didn't exist right So like no. if they're the first one to go to those distributors in that way um, so the keep thing to keep in mind here is they weren't like the first mover for online fashion by any means. Farfetch is and Farfetch is a very large company. Farfetch essentially had this similar model when they started where they didn't go direct to the brands and then over time they have started working directly with the brands partly that you could argue that becomes because you get to a certain size and the brands want to work directly with you they don't want you to be involved with any third party in the middle yeah but yeah so i think that's part of it the other part is what i was getting to next is the operating leverage side so this business is incredibly not just capital light but staff light <laughs> i think there was a couple of dozen or you know less than a couple of dozen people working there at the time of ipo right. um and this is a business doing you know as we said probably a couple hundred million dollars of revenue this year, and effectively, it's just been designed like you'd imagine. And in some ways, I think of it like an ideal business design, right? Where the customer orders online, that order is dispatched through to the distributor who packages it up and then hands it off to the courier company. Courier company delivers it, all that's automated. And it means that there's very like little need for all the costs that typically go with retail and even online retail. So I think that that is one part of it. So if you get to enough scale, that's what could be defensive. If you have enough scale, you're operating, you can just do things better than the next guy that can come along. You can cut a better deal with all the suppliers. Mm-hmm. And then the third is probably marketing. So to Claude's point, one of the challenges is... There's not a really high ratio of return pre-customers. I think that's kind of slightly unfair on Satire, I should add, because they are growing so extremely fast. If you're adding, if you're growing 200% a year, it's hard for a lot of those customers to be repeat customers, but it is mm. it is still. Mm. They are spending more on marketing than they made in gross profit in the last half, so both fair and, I think, slightly harsh compared to like a steady state company. But mm. that's how you defend, if you do defend, is you make it become a brand. That Like all the online stuff we've talked about, I think, anyway, mm. um, it becomes a destination. And then people go to you by default and you don't have to pay so much of a Google tax to, yeah, to, to have that traffic. Mm. Mm. Okay, thanks. Yeah,
1: I, I think the story kind of changed a bit in terms of, I guess, even from 2020, the last half, right? they kind of did hack the SEO and the advertising and the and the cost of acquiring users previous to that, like it, it wasn't such a big percentage of their revenue that was being spent on advertising and marketing expense. So they were bringing in people into the site at a really quick rate, but not at a very high cost at all. And I think that took most investors by surprise in the latest half. Those costs really ramped up. Yes, like the the top line growth was still there, but it did come at a much bigger expense. And I think that's where the story has changed a little bit from maybe even 12 to 18 months ago.
0: Yeah, and when you say hacked, Cleve, you mean like growth hacking basically, right? Like they seem to have found some way to get really high returns on marketing. We Correct. don't know what it was. Um, we, not not to, you know, allege anything there, but somehow they were getting really high f- returns on ad spend.
3: I, I don't know how that is, but definitely in my opinion, um, SEO and also like the Google ad spend um, is a huge like deal for these businesses. Like we've seen with other listed businesses that are like online clothes apparel retail, how like a change in the Google alg- algorithm can like massively impact their thing. It's not even just that. It's like a lot of companies that, even my own business, you know, it, a change in, you do something right with Google and you get more traffic, like it's just free growth. But you do something wrong and you lose traffic and then you're going down.
0: I mean, that's a great point, Claude. Like this, this, this ramp in advertising costs did. Largely come during this half where everyone had a big hurt to advertising costs because of IDFA changes, right? So maybe they were doing something which doesn't work as well anymore. Like maybe it's permanently gone. I guess would be the the yeah. case but, as well.
3: But also on the SEO stuff, like and it just I just wanted to zoom in on that point that you're saying. If you do make it work, then that's what you do is make this a brand, make it set eye where someone that you somewhere like where you're actually checking out actively. Um, that might work, but it's going to be. I, I wonder who the kind of person is that like goes directly to satire, right? Because I have just like in preparation for this, spent some time on the on the website, and it's like, okay, look, there's a nice dress that I could buy for my um, apartment for three thousand two hundred and forty six dollars, right?
1: Bargain. <laughs> I'm
0: not saying that I would never. <laughs> that, that. I would, that would not surprise me at all, <laughs> you, Claude. <laughs> this is a nice
3: dress, and like it would be. You know, if she ended up liking it, it would be worth it. But obviously, that's a bit of a punt.
0: I'll send it to her after that. <laughs>
3: and, <laughs> and, and also, like, you have to be a pretty high roller if you're not just, like, buying one 3,246 dress as a crack and then maybe next time you, like, go something, like, safer, like a ring or whatever. If you're, like, regularly buying 3,246, like, dresses for your partner, like, how many people are there that are doing that?
2: I've never bought um, a dress. No. Period for my partner. <laughs> I'm not saying that.
3: <laughs> I'm not saying that. Like, obviously, there are people that use this website multiple times. But yeah, look, I don't know how many. I, I think there's a like, lot. Man, I think but,
0: there's a lot of aspirational people who like to wear the fancy brands. Like, I've, I've, I don't know. I've it? definitely had colleagues uh-huh. who would buy like four, you know, regularly buy four thousand dollar handbags like several times a year, kind of thing. That's wow. wild. So yeah, I think
1: <laughs> I think it's so foreign to us though. But like, yeah, I agree with you, Matt. Like, because if you look at, if you go down to, you know, like a, a shopping center or like a high end sort of mall, like you look at the people that are lining up for some of these stores, there's actually like a line outside the store. So there's
0: always a line. Yep, I'm at Bondi Junction. I walk past these, like, yeah, they always keep a velvet rope line, like you're walking into a nightclub, and yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Which is crazy, right? Because they're, they're playing on such scarcity of, I guess, the, the human psychology. But people are actually lining up to pay $3,000 for a dress. And I think that's the, the interesting part. I think most of us probably can't relate because we're not set eyes, target audience and consumer. I think the market is there.
3: It, it's there, but look, I have bought items that are like that expensive for my partner, but like I personally have done it in store. I've always set foot in a store before I like am parted with thousands of dollars. Now maybe my habits could change and maybe they will, but like, yeah, I still think that I do definitely think that people were way more likely to go and spend $4,000 on a, on a website during COVID. COVID. Like I know, you know, looking at, um Some of my own family members' behavior, like clearly they were sitting at home, like perusing websites where you can buy like expensive items, but like their normal way of doing it would be like walking around galleries or shops or whatever it is. So
0: yeah. I don't know. If- I mean, I think that's fair. I think long term though, don't you think? Most, do you think there's something that will stop it moving online if we're talking like five, ten years from now? Obviously, there's a COVID bump. In the meantime, that could be quite rough for some of these businesses, but
3: for sure, like I will say, it, it will be probably more online than it than it has been in the past. But do, does the end of the end of the story kind of level of online? It's not going to be the same as how much people are going to keep ordering their groceries online, basically. Because I feel like for the people, which I am not one of these people, but like I have, you know, spent time with such people is, like, for people that have money to spend that kind of stuff on those kind of consumer luxuries, like, I feel like going to, like, Milan and or, you know, going to their fragrance-testing tour of Spain and Germany and, and Italy or whatever, that's, like, part of it for them. It's all that travel stuff and, and being in person. And, and I reckon part of how they do spend so much is that they, like, go into the exclusive store and then they're offered a sparkling water or a, or a coffee while they, like, buy their, like, Italian silk jackets and stuff like that and it's like a whole experience so i do think that all of that stuff is going to settle at a higher level of in-person behavior than like out for the most part which obviously it's a massive what about about in the metaverse
0: Claude? maybe you could go in vr and they'll give you a little you know
3: it might be like that one day
0: (laughs) no i think that's a fair point i think the ultra luxury stuff particularly there's the the brands would want to protect that, right? Um. So I think the the Birkin bag is the one that I was thinking, but I don't think is is sold on satire, where it's like you have to know someone and wait go on a waiting list to maybe be allowed to purchase it for like ridiculous amounts of money. But no,
3: but like if you want to go, if you know your partner likes you know Alexander McQueen dresses or whatever, like then for. But, or if you know you like them, then you like might want to go and see that entire collection. Whereas as I understand it, and this could be wrong because I'm not an expert on these matters of fashion, but when I look around the SESI website, I it, it's like you won't see the whole new latest collection or whatever. You there just seems to be well, from what I can tell, or there'll be like limited sizes or whatever it is.
0: Yeah, there is there is something to that which is I guess part of why distributors might like it and there's an argument um, that said I might make that this is something and kind of bulls for set would make is that the fact they're not partnering with the uh, brands is kind of okay because there's always been some kind of stock to manage that didn't get sold through and often that had been sold at a fire sale. Yeah. So if and you're selling with a small to discount, that, right. Online.
3: And that might be the bull case. That might be when I buy, like, if I'm like, oh, je- based on where they are, based on this like niche that I think they can sustainably fill forever, ever, ever which would be like, I don't know, for lack of a better description, like the off-cats of like luxury fashion labels or whatever, not saying that they're bad, it's just like whatever, it's the incomplete bits, um, you know, we have this size in this dress and we have this size in this shoes, but not everything, then that kind of makes sense, right? And that might be like actually quite a little valuable niche you can sit in for a long time. And if you have, as you do here, you know, a manager that's like owns the company then then they'd be incentivized to use the capital and to position well and maybe that's exactly what's happening and and if the actual market capitalization fell below what and I don't know the answer to this by the way but if it fell below what I thought you know that a, co- a good company in that niche was worth then that might be when I would buy with some confidence or whatever.
0: Yeah I think you you brought up um, Dean Muntz who's the CEO and um, we should touch on He owns about two-thirds of the business, um, quite a good chunk of, of shares. Obviously, it only fairly recently IPO'd and hasn't needed much capital to grow to date. Even now, it's actually still largely self-financing potentially through the negative working capital cycle. Basically, as long as it keeps growing, it gets paid in advance. So it can it can make kind of reported losses but not burn that much cash, I guess, if that makes sense, because you're growing and you get paid in advance. He's, he's kind of the driving force behind the business. There's very there's not very many other employees. Um, and he, to date has been you know the the mastermind of it. He seems to be a fanatic. There's not that much known about him. He's never given any interview with the newspapers. The newspapers seem quite frustrated by his like lack of public information. Um, but he is, I believe, on the young rich list, if not the overall rich list at this point. And it seems like he's been the driving force. So um, build it around himself, uh, you know, has been kind of a genius marketer, drop shipper before. And in a way, you could say maybe he's found like the ideal type of business to do this from because there's such large ticket sizes. So selling luxury makes means that, you know, if it costs you 50 or or $100 to acquire a customer, you could make that back very quickly.
3: Yeah, exactly. And also if you, as it sounds like, you know, that he does, if you have a, a great talent for like seeing the arbitrage opportunity in some sort of advertising spend and understand those systems really well, then I imagine the area in which, that would have the biggest payoff would be in something you know that has needs advertising but has like a potentially high ticket size so you're probably maximizing whatever little arbitrage advantage you have there that could actually just be such a a powerful little profitable business and as you were saying the fact that gotten quite a lot of revenues and built its way up you know largely without raising too much extra money that's why it's so interesting and I can't not Follow it because it is yeah. such shit. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's really incredible. Well.
0: He's gone from nothing to hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue with it's almost been self funding. So the long term bull case, Claude laid out one bull case, which is kind of like the more niche bull case. I think the bigger bull case um that the the big the bigger set i bills would say is, hey, this is how Farfetch started, and Farfetch now is doing billions of dollars of revenue a year. Um, setai is doing only hundreds of millions so there's a 10x just to catch up to farfetch maybe, maybe farfetch is also going to take share in the whole industry and setai is doing it in a way that's even more efficient than farfetch farfetch has i think a couple of thousand staff and um, they, they have a, a lot bigger footprint than Seti does maybe Seti can build just a much leaner version of farfetch and thereby keep prices lower the whole way and compete on price hmm. and at some point maybe they have to partner more with brands they have made some announcements of some brand partnerships that they've done Um, and maybe that's where the model goes so that kind of takes away the risk of the brands being annoyed and this kind of potential gray you know alleged gray market thing that's happening and that could solve that i guess the question is do we think that you know the management team are going to build out enough to be sustainable at that level or is it is it going to be kind of stuck in that niche do they make that transition to be better than Farfetch at Farfetch's own game. Um, I think that could be the the big, big bull case.
2: Yeah, and I guess what's also interesting too, just doing some very rough numbers, on a trailing 12-month basis, you've got, what, three and a half times sales um, for businesses with all these advantages and upside. So kind of, I don't know, my, my sense at this point is I'll have to do more work on it, but, execution is sort of everything here it's sort of all the the the, the play the playbook here seems really sound <laughs> and there's definitely runs on the board in terms of what they've done and they seem a little bit advantaged by their first mover and the uh, the rest of it is that yeah. is that pretty much what it is is that, yeah, is that what we're talking right. about here because because you know they get it half right this is, this is dirt cheap
0: i think that's it i think that's the, that's the hardest part about valuing it is i mean anything that's growing 180 percent a year you know what does that mean next year is next year going to be another 180 is it going to be 150 like where does it top out does it top out Mm. um it becomes yeah difficult i think once it tipped into cash flow negative that's why you've seen the share price sell off so much because before then people could kind of say well you know it's still just around break even or slightly profitable like it it can definitely do this itself and Mm. i can get on board i think australia really punishes companies that go into cash burn mode um some you know sometimes rightly but compared to well i guess sometimes probably been hit pretty hard (laughs) recently but um but yeah so i think that would be it do do that is this wise investment like in a lot of ways what they're doing by spending is exactly what you would do i think in in that situation Mm. if you believed that that long-term bull case was true you'd go really hard at it um spend the money now and you know lock in customers for a long time
2: that's exactly it, I man. It really frustrates me. Is is that it's it's not about the cash flow situation today. It's sort of like, well, what what cash flow looks like at a, more of a steady state, ex growth kind of ambition. But it's all about the return on capital. I mean, if I've got an opportunity to get a fifty percent return on any money you give me, I mean, I'm gonna I'm, whatever I've got, I get my hands on, I'm gonna put it out the door. And that's the exact right thing to do for shareholders. So what if I'm cash flow negative? As long as I can stay afloat and raise capital and continue to reinvest at those incredible rates, that is. 100% the right move, particularly when there are sort of like land grab dynamics.
0: Yeah, no, it makes sense. Yeah, well, let's just check quickly. Another topic that's been in the news a lot um, is food inflation. Obviously, as we touched on, I think last week or week before, um, around the tragic situation with the war in Ukraine, that's had a big impact. Um, yeah, Claude, maybe just give us a rundown what you're thinking around kind of food price inflation and security at the moment.
3: The issue there is that uh, through the heinous invasion, the uh, world's or at least Europe's wheat bowl is probably not like right now in the process of not planting the wheat. And I think, you know, sunflower and other crops that Ukraine would usually grow. So that could basically lead to prices in food, basic foods going up. And on top of that, um, we just saw recently elders report a sort of a buoyant, I guess you'd call it an upgrade. I'm not actually sure what the analyst expectations were, but it put up a profit guidance and its share price went up like 11% in a day or whatever it was. And I think I think I listened to the call and I think I remember him saying something along the lines of um, basically they think that some farmers are like sort of stocking up on stuff now um, because everyone's getting a bit nervous about supply chain stuff with all inflation. So, I mean, it's not really just food because actually, I guess food and fuel are also intertwined in our economies. Mm -hmm. So, fuel inflation and food inflation, and just generally like the just supply change, it's a bit of a game changer, really, because already we were kind of in an inflationary environment. And I think with the inflation coming, which we've, you know, I was think I was writing about inflation a year ago now, um, and it's just increase and increase and then this is the unexpected thing that perhaps increases inflation even more so i guess i'm interested in what you guys have to think about inflation generally and and whether it could and i guess how you've game that out and me personally like i guess i bought recently i guess partly why this came up is i bought um the asx food ETF, which is a beta shares ETF. Now that's you know definitely not a recommendation and I might change my mind. It's just an ETF, but I just had some cash sitting there and I was like, oh, I feel like maybe it'll be better in this than in cash. Uh, perhaps that's a silly thing to do, uh, but I've also, also got cash as well. But basically, yeah, I'm interested in how inflation is going to play out now. And, and certainly that has me thinking a little bit differently about my portfolio, um, mm. not least just because I saw that elders move.
0: Yeah, it's a big topic. I think... For me, I think you touched on a lot of that, Claude. So we we already had really tight markets for fertilizers before the invasion. So there's a few things going on. Energy prices, fertilizer, I think the cost for um, some fertilizers is kind of 75% natural gas costs. So if you're a European fertilizer company that had already been shooting up, China had also blocked exports of phosphate, um, which is another you know major producer of fertilizers. So that's out of the market. And then I think it's, Russia and Belarus, um, I could be wrong on this, if any listeners (laughs) correct me, other I think it's those two countries that are some of the biggest exporters for potash. So you kind of have all three coming under strain at the same time. As as well, you mentioned Russia and Ukraine are both big exporters of wheat. So wheat prices have shot up. And the countries that are kind of most exposed to wheat prices, um, Middle East, Africa, yeah, it's a very big deal there, I guess, is what I'm trying to allude to. So do you guys remember the food crisis of 2008, 2009? No one that I've talked to really remembers it. Um, it totally didn't really affect us too much. We, there was probably like a bit of stuff about um, high prices. This is kind of it was more like 2007, 2008, but it kind of flowed through. In, in certain parts of the world, that was basically a famine. So for us, it's like it was just slightly higher, uncomfortably higher cro- prices at the supermarket and obviously – um, if you're on a, a low wage here in Australia or New Zealand or where our listeners are, um, it's not great, but it's just radically worse in other parts of the world. I remember a story from that time that I just dug up recently from Haiti, where there were people basically making um, biscuits out of mud to like have something to fill their stomachs with. Like That's how bad it was in that Jeez. time. The Arab Spring is like largely tied to a spike in wheat prices and the protests that went along with it in 2010, 2011. We're now like past those levels, so that's I think the biggest concern, like humanitarian and economic and everything, is you know where we will. Australia is will incredibly well positioned for all of this. I guess is a good news for people listening here. At least you know we're an energy exporter and a massive exporter of food, and we can we can be self sufficient if necessary. But yeah, that's. Um, that's, I think, the most bearish case um, that I see coming out of it. And I, I feel I quite bad focusing on the economic <laughs> side
3: of things now because I'm like, oh, it's so much worse and more of a humanitarian tragedy, which, like,
0: of yeah, it, it can and be, and right? I, I mean, I'm very I, upset yeah. about it, You just, I hope that it's, I think it's getting enough attention now. The UN's talking about it, but it's just a really hard problem to solve because the, the risk now is Ukraine doesn't plant. It's wheat crop and that happens I think around April. So yeah, anyway, and you know, if the if the Black Sea's cut off then they can't export anything. So just there's a lot of a lot of stuff going in the wrong direction, I guess, for food security at the moment. So yeah. I think it's, it's something I'm mindful of. I don't know the best um, best ways to like think about it from an investing strategy necessarily. I think we're very lucky to be where we are in the world. But um, yeah, what are you guys any other thoughts on how you're thinking about like food? Food security, food inflation.
2: I well. I deb- inflation's been on the radar for a little while, and for the longest while, it was that sort of, oh, it's just transitory. It's all COVID-related. It's all supply chains. I just, I, I think that we're in a situation now where it's more likely and more longer-lasting. I mean, it's very hard to push forward and read too much beyond that kind of stuff. So I, I, I feel as though you know, in combination with what we're paying for petrol and all of it. It's going to have an impact, right? Like it's going to almost certainly have an impact. But as always, it's very different in its in its impact uh, as as well. So it's um, but I, I definitely think just to keep it purely in the financial realm, that is that is going to make some of the loftier valuations of yesteryear much more difficult to return to.
0: One interesting thing to think about if you're trying to imply the investing angle, I guess, to your question, Claude, is that I struggled with a little is how it plays out in terms of who in the food value chain would be benefiting from that type of situation we described because you'd say the farmers would um, but the farmers are also the reason that the wheat prices are up for instance is because fertilizer costs so much more how much are they capturing and kind of i've kind of applied that through for a lot of different food companies like if you look at someone who's say manufacturing a food product they could actually like a a food manufacturer might be in a really bad spot potentially because their input costs go up but that you know, they can't pass it all on because they don't have that much pricing power. And so their demand basically falls for that product. Yeah. And just something I'm mindful of. It's actually, it, the more you think about it, maybe, maybe the way to go is what you've done, Claude, like an ETF where you're kind of having some broad exposure and say like on net, these companies will be benefiting.
3: Yeah. So I did flounder a little bit um, in trying to figure out how I, like, if I wanted to, if there was anything I should do in regards to this concern in my portfolio and I made some decisions, which I'm probably going to like unwind or whatever. And, but I think it was only in the last few days that I just learned, okay, this exact question that you asked is makes it really difficult for me to, you know, pick the right one. Like, oh yeah, I wish I'd, you know, bought the elders and then held for the upgrade and got my easy 10%. And that is kind of the overall effect that I think is going to happen that I want to capture, but I don't know the industry well enough to like like as you say like what what's the software company that's like controlling the farms
0: (laughs) uh, or something like that we always want to find the software one (laughs)
3: yeah um like that would be cool but basically i sort of landed on the etf as just a i guess a blunt tool that i think will capture some of it and i did listen to like you know i looked at the list of the etf and there's a whole lot of companies most of them overseas that i'm not familiar with but I listened to some of the conference calls and stuff like that, and yeah, there's a lot of moving parts, even on these individual businesses, for me to even be able to guess, like if if they're going to do well out of the situation. So, I guess overall, it's more of a sort of bet that if the value that that particular industry is producing is sort of going up, and it's there's a demand, ta- like a demand pull there. Usually, that allows for different parts of the cog like different people in the system to expand their profits because suddenly like, yeah, there's going to be someone who's like almost in a profiteering position and they'll try to capture as much of it as they can for themselves. But when there's so much of a supply constraint, that person who's trying to, who is in a position to capture most of the value, they're also incentivized to like let other people to keep some of the value as well, just to keep supply going as much as possible. That is a theory. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um so that was the theory why I think of overall the cis in if this, if there is going to be a shortage of food, then this, you know, the whole industry should, I would have thought, be able to like capture some of the value. Although I just don't know really where it's going to land. And, and maybe, you know, the other thing that I think of in, in regards to inflation is I think, oh, well, I guess it's good to own land, I, I suppose, but obviously a completely different topic, but it's just good to um, own land. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, I don't know. Yeah, I would like I guess best not to get Andrew started on the property market. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's okay with that's all I have to say about like that. that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. I just uh, what I find
2: hard about it, Claude, I hear what you're saying, but I, I find it like even let's say they have a couple of spectacular years. You know, it's, it's just almost almost by definition in the industry that they operate in, it's not it's not sustainable. Not for any lengthy period of time. There's there's always a Sort of supply side response whenever those kinds of conditions are there. So it, it seems as though you know you look at this ETF that you mentioned. Well, it's it's up quite a bit since all of this kind of started. It's like okay, that was probably really warranted given where we are now. But is is it, you need more than oh, it's, we're going to have elevated prices for a little while. For those valuations yeah. to drive even further, that that's what gets, and, and then it can just it change. Might be priced but, in. The walk it in tomorrow, and all the farmers in Ukraine go ahead and plant the full crop. Like you just, it's so hard for me. Yeah, I get, exactly. I get I the totally urge to profit on it to me
3: as well, but I just you know? like, buy the top and then. It just, and I'm not calling. <laughs> that not the calling. worst thing
0: to happen, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hope it happens. I hope it does
2: happen. <laughs> yeah, I just, I can't call any of those outcomes. It's really, it's really hard to put. No, you you're, you're
3: exactly right. Andrew, and the, the and you, other you trouble, have an angel on my shoulder there. So. The other trouble
2: I would say too is like when it's the asymmetry that I don't like. So if you are right, there's probably, you know, maybe you're really right. Maybe there's a 20, 30% upside there. It's kind of like as good as it gets on something like that near, near term. And, 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 but the downside is probably really significant. So, you know, to use my favorite term at the moment is it's just a, I wonder if the, the negative expected value overall. So it's, I think everyone has the urges everyone has the urges in times like this, like, oh, if something's going down in the world. How do I profit from it? And I think it's, I really commend, it. I mean, again, putting all the seriousness of these issues aside, I think we're, we're all sort of trying to do our best with what's available out there. But I I usually think it's the longer term structural, business driven, uh, uh, macro trend kind of things are the far more interesting things to, and far more, far more uh, attractive things to invest on rather than near-term macro machinations, for me anyway. Macro machinations.
3: I agree with that, mate. I (laughs) think that was really well put. But you're right. It probably does have a negative expected value. And it's because I have a bad habit of sort of trying to hedge myself, I guess, constantly. And I reckon overall that hampers my returns. So you're probably right about that. Well, Um, I feel like you're a purer long-term investor than me and an inspiration, my friend.
2: <laughs> well, so it's not. Be, let's not rush ahead of ourselves because we'll we'll put this out on onto the old uh, uh podcast uh, arena, and then like in in three weeks' time, it'll be like the best trade of the <laughs> century.
0: ETF, best trade of. <laughs> <Yeah>. best trade- <laughs> and- <laughs> <laughs>
2: it's guaranteed now that I've said all of that.
0: Yeah. It'll be like one of those CNBC stories. I don't know if you read CNBC. They've always got like, "How this seventeen-year-old made two million dollars doing this thing." <coughs> How someone all stopped saving cups of coffee and made this much money? No, yeah, yeah. no. I think that's a. Uh, I think that's a good way to good way to wrap it, gents. Um, yeah, good discussion of uh, two very different topics: very fast-growing fashion retailer and what's going on in the world of uh, food. Hopefully, we uh, it sees a, a good resolution. If anyone has any feedback on anything we talked about, anything we got wrong or, or right, or something you'd like to hear from us about, um, you can drop us a line by emailing us at at babygiantspodcast.gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at babygiantspod. And uh, yeah, until next time, thanks very much for listening.
3: Cheers. Thanks, guys. It was fun. Thanks,
0: guys.